the neighborhood had seen, it had not seen so many stretch limos in its lifetime. I mean, you've seen stretch limos, you know, they come in all colors and shapes and sizes. When our boy Kirk was growing up, one of his favorite backseat pastimes as we were heading over to Chicago was to count how many limos he could see on the way to the airport in O'Hare. The, um, the gray, the black, and the silver. Because you and I know that when you, spot a, when you spot a limo, your eyes immediately light up because limos tend to indicate somebody very important is passing by. Limos are driven for people who are important or for people who are trying hard to pretend that they're important. Like the Academy Awards. Either way, the limousines always catch your eyes. And so the neighborhood that is absolutely abuzz tonight. Because as far as the eye can see, there are those stretch limos everywhere. Big party. Places jammed. Although very interesting tonight, the paparazzi, you know those ubiquitous gawking cameramen that always show up where it's happening. No paparazzi tonight. Because the word's out. Nobody important is coming. But the guests drive up, invited in their rented status symbols, the men with greasy, slick back, black hair, a pasty, gaudy girl clinging on to that uh, right elbow. One by one by one they come, but there is no sight of the guest. Where is the guest of honor? Party's already started. And eventually he arrives, chugging up the street in that beat-up, Old Ford Taurus drives into the driveway. The guest steps out. No tux. No girl. Just a Kmart blue light special of a suit. But when the host spots him and comes bounding down those stairs with his arms outstretched, you could have sworn this is the President of the United States himself. Only little cameras, one of those yellow Kodak throwaway specials, flashing, 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 flashing. Let the party begin. The guest is here. I want to go, I want to, go to that flesh-colored mercy with you this morning. Open your Bible with me, please, because three of, the gospel, three of the gospel writers just paint in their own unique hues that unforgettable late-night party. Let's go to that party. Now, you know that we have a friend in this series, and our friend is Matthew. And so we're going to go to Matthew for the party. Although, I've got to tell you, this is Matthew chapter 9. Matthew is so humble, he will not even tell us in his account that he's the one throwing the party and that it's taking place in his ornate mansion. Not a word about it, but let's go to Matthew chapter 9. you got a Bible in the choir loft. you got a Bible in the pew. If you didn't bring a Bible, just grab the pew Bible in front of you, please, because it'll be the New King James Version which is what I'll be in uh, this morning with you. Page number in our pew Bible, page 634. Let the party begin. Here goes. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And so Matthew arose and followed him. Hey, hit the pause button right there because i got to tell you, this is a very gutsy call on the part of Christ. Because I remind you, in case you forgot, Matthew was a member of the hated tax collectors. 
You know who the tax collectors were, don't you? They were those wealthy Jews who collaborated with the despised Romans to raise the taxes of the little land of Judea. Because you see, it's a good deal. If the Romans come to you and they say, hey boy, we're going to give you Berrien Springs, and we've assessed Berrien Springs a tax of $200,000 every year, it's a good deal. The bad, the, the bad part of the deal is the Romans say, if, if you don't get 200000 from them, we'll take it right out of your own hide. So we, just, we don't care where you get it. We need 200000 The good news is that because you're under that kind of pressure, you can set exorbitant levels of levied taxes. And so you can understand that tax collectors were not the most popular men in the village. In fact, they were despised. And hated his collaborators who had cut some kind of Faustian bargain with the devil himself. Police. So you've got to admit, pretty gutsy of Jesus to say, Hey boy, you, you follow me. I'm going to make you a part of the inner circle of my closest. Whoa. All right, verse 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, Follow me. So Matthew arose and followed him, verse 10. And now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many, notice the word, many, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew humbly omits any mention of who's throwing this party, but Mark and Luke are absolutely insistent that we know it's Matthew himself. And because Matthew's a tax collector, he is a very wealthy man. He will not be wealthy for long. But he's living in, an, in this opulent mansion. Matthew's throwing the party. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, because verse 9 and verse 10 are juxtaposed side to side, we know two reasons. Two reasons. It's Matthew's kind of subtle way of telling us there are two reasons why I threw this party. Reason number one, he is overwhelmed with a deep and almost tearful gratitude to this Jesus of Nazareth who has saved him from that life of under-the-table extortion and greed. I just, I just have to say thank you. And reason number two is Matthew cannot wait to have his buddies with their consorts and their girlfriends and their wives meet the very same Jesus who obviously is a friend of tax collectors. When mercy comes a-running to you, you cannot keep that fact to yourself. You've got to tell. So he's having a party. Very big party, by the way. Luke's language is it's a huge party. Broke the bank to say thank you. All right. Uh, let's, read, uh, let's read verse 10 again. And so now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in Matthew's house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Because notice, notice the coupling of those two categories. Whenever the Jews had this little word association game, they, let's play word association. I'll say a word, you respond. Whenever they would say tax collector, they knew the winning response was always sinner. If you say Pharisee, saint. If you say Roman, heathen or pig. If you say Samaritan, half-breed or dog. Tax collector, sinner. Always those two bound together. So this is a party for the tax collectors and sinners and others, such social and ecclesiastical outcasts, and for Jesus. And guess what? The Pharisees think they're invited. Wrong, guys! But they didn't know. They just went ahead and showed up anyway. Wouldn't you know it? Look at that, verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, Pharisees, when the Pharisees saw the party, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Party poopers? 
It's like that old jingle. Every party has a pooper. That's why we invited you. Party pooper. Party pooper. That's why the Pharisees showed up. They weren't invited. Drove up in their Honda Accords. I love this Kodak moment. This Kodak moment. Picture, picture of Jesus. I just love this. Look at this, guys. Because the Pharisees, these haughty religious prelates who wouldn't be caught dead in the house of an unclean publican. But they've got to find a way to get inside that party somehow. They can't go in, so they find this giant open window beside the banqueting. The orange festive light is spilling out onto the ground. They're standing in that orange light. The laughter of a party in full progress wafts into the night air. And the Pharisees, they get up to that window on their tiptoes and they go, because Pharisees always hiss. Try to get the attention of some of these young men that call the guest of honor master. I tell you what, they're a bunch of whips. Won't take on Jesus, but pick on his followers instead. But here comes this Kodak moment, and I just love this because my mother was this way. And you know what? Your mother was this way. I mean, did you notice this about your mom? I mean, you can be in a room packed. Maybe it was your own, your, your own little house. And everybody's come over. And Mama's across the room, caught up in a conversation with her friends in that corner of the room. And on the other side of the living room, you and your little buddies are there. And you know what? You can make one slipping mistake in, in a word. And that mother, who is so concentrated on her friends the whole time, with that rear view antenna, is listening to everything you're saying. Boom! She's in your... Oh boy, what would you say, boy? Jesus is just like a great mom. This is the Kodak moment. Because he's over here. Nobody has asked Jesus a thing. He is in conversation with the other publicans and tax collectors and prostitutes who are there. He's in conversation, but his ear is monitoring his little boys over in that corner. And they're just a few years younger than he. And when he hears that psst, boom, he was not invited, but he cuts into that conversation. You had a question, gentlemen? I love that. I love that about Jesus. He'll never leave you alone, by the way. You'll never have to dangle alone if He's your master. He's got an ear to wherever you be. He's listening. Yep. All right. I see that I'm on the next page. Pardon me just a moment. All right. Here we go. Verse 11. Yeah, that's a great story. I love it. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw it, we'll read it again. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, see that ear is cocked. When Jesus heard that, he cut into that conversation and he said to them, and by the way, when Jesus speaks up, he gets everybody's attention. That party, like E.F. Hutton, that party just goes, quiet. And Jesus from across the room, hey, you guys outside the window, you have a question? Talk to me. Jesus speaks in verse 12. He says, hey, don't you know? You guys obviously haven't been around a hospital. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Well, people don't need a doctor. Jesus said, no, 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 no. But those who are sick. In fact, go and learn. Since you guys weren't invited to this party anyway, why don't you go home and have a Bible study? 
Go have a Bible study. I want you to pull out the scrolls. Be sure and get the scroll to Hosea. There's one little line in Hosea, guys, I wish you would please meditate on for a while for the rest of this night. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I do not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I love the way Eugene Peterson renders this last line of Jesus in the message. He he has Jesus saying, I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Insiders always want to be coddled, 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 coddled. Reminds me of the prayer Martin Luther once prayed. Oh, when I saw this prayer, I said, thank you, Luther, for teaching me that because I'd like to pray it too. It goes like this. May God of his mercy preserve me from a church in which there are none but saints. Whoa. Awful church to be in if there are only saints in it, trust me. Good thing you and I are here. May God of His mercy preserve me from a church in which there are none but saints. I desire to dwell with the humble, the feeble, the sick, who know and feel their sins, and who groan and cry continually to God from the bottom of their hearts to obtain His consolation and support. Jesus said, I came to call sinners. What kind of sinners? What do you suppose? Ladies and gentlemen, as far as I can tell, there are no express limitations in Jesus' rejoinder. Do you see any? I think he probably means, now I'm just guessing at this, I think he probably means all sinners. You know the type, don't you? Heterosexual sinners and homosexual sinners. You know the type. Ethical sinners and unethical sinners. Alcoholic sinners and non-alcoholic sinners. Democrat sinners and Republican sinners. Some of you think, some of you think Jesus hung around with the Republicans. He did not. He hung around with the publicans. Not the same thing. Independent sinners, probably. White sinners, black sinners, brown sinners, yellow sinners, red sinners, all of them. Rich, poor sinners, yep. Male, female, yep. Educated, illiterate, yep. Christian sinners, Jewish sinners, Muslim sinners, Hindu sinners, atheist sinners, Adventist sinners. Come on, you know the type. All of them. I hang around them all. Apparently, when mercy comes a-running, it comes a-running for all of us. Which strikes me as some bit, a bit of good news. Doesn't it strike you that way? Please. Say, hey, you guys by the window. Psst. Hey. Matthew says you weren't invited. So go home and have a Bible study, will you? And look it up. Hosea 6.6. 6. Figure out what God means when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Good night. <laughs> Did you know that that solitary line from Hosea is quoted only twice in the New Testament? Both times by Matthew and both times on the lips of Jesus himself. There, there must be some really punch packed. With that powerful line, there's, the only other time in the New Testament, take a look. Just turn one page over. Matthew chapter 12. Take a look at this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. Only other time. Hosea 6. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. Let's go. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to them, and here come the red letters now. Jesus said, 
What's, what's your guys' problem? Haven't you read what David did when he was hungry and he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God, verse 4. How he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor was it for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or how about this, guys? Verse 5. Haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you, if you guys could get this, that there is one greater than the temple who is standing here. But verse 7, I wish you'd have another Bible study. Verse 7. But you had not known, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy. There it is. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. And by the way, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Only two places in the New Testament. We just read them. And by the way, the story's not over yet because Jesus said, listen, guys, you're slowing me up. I'm planning to go to church today. Where's the synagogue? Because I'm having worship today with you. And so the very next verse, verse 9, now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man, verse 10, who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, hey, teacher, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? They didn't want to know. They didn't want an answer. They wanted to nail him. And Jesus said to them again, these guys, these are everywhere. Then he said to them, what man is there? Come on, guys, tell me. You got a sheep? Sheep wanders out of your little corral? On the Sabbath, tumbles into a pit. You're on your way to church, and you look down that pit, and that is your prized sheep. What are you going to do on the Sabbath? Don't tell me that you're going to go ahead and go worship and leave that sheep there. Are you crazy? I know what you'll do. You'll climb down. you get all dirty in that pit just to save the life of a little tiny fluffy sheep. Now, Jesus says, verse 12, of how much more value then is a human being than a sheep? Therefore, I'm telling you, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he turns from those party poopers and he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man with the withered hand realizes he's in the presence of divinity. And in faith, that hand just like, just like that, just like that. And then verse 14, oh boy, the Pharisees went out and plotted against Jesus how they might destroy him. And it's clear from the gospel record from that point, it's all downhill. He is headed to death. By that single act of mercy, Jesus signed his own death warrant. Mercy is that important to him. Signed his execution orders. There they are, ladies and gentlemen. Two stories, one punchline. I desire mercy. And what's the truth about that punchline? This is the great truth about mercy. And you can track this truth all the way through Jesus' life. And here it is. The truth is that mercy elevates need above creed. Need over creed. Need over creed. You know what the problem with you and me is? We get it backwards. And so that we won't get it backwards, let's quickly write it in front words. Take the study guide that's in your uh, worship bulletin. Will you do that? Just take your study guide out. We've got to write this in. Thank you, ushers. We probably have people here who got in without uh, study guides. So ushers, come all the way up to the front. Make sure we, we cover up here. Hold your hand up uh, if you need a study guide. And while the ushers are coming by, let me say to those of you who are watching on TV, you can get the same study guide right now. Let me put it on the screen for you. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. You can get the study guide by going to this particular teaching series. It's called Mercy Came or Running. And the, the title of this teaching is How to Put a Smile on God's Face. You want to put a smile on God's face. It's mercy, mercy, mercy. When you see that, how to, how to put a smile on God's face, it says study guide. Click right there. 
And you'll have that study guide right on the screen before you, and you can fill it in even as we go here on your computer there. All right. Everybody get one all the way in the balcony. Choir has theirs, I know. Let's go. Number one, fill it out, please. Two stories about Jesus with a single truth about God. I desire mercy. Fill that in, please. I desire mercy. That's Hosea 6.6. 6. Keep your pen moving. The truth we need to get frontwards, here it is. Mercy elevates need above creed. Need over creed. Keep your pen moving. That means people above propriety. What's proper? No, people more important. Human lives above human laws. And mercy above justice. Did you get that? Mercy above justice. Are we just imagining this, guys? Are we making this up? No, 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 no. There is a stunning line, and you've got to see it in your own Bible. This is our last text to look up. Go to the little book of James in the New Testament. If you can find the book of Hebrews, the book right after Hebrews is James. Page number in our pew Bible would be page 812. Some of you are going to be startled that, in fact, this verse is in your Bible. This is unbelievable. Take a look at this. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, drop down to verse 13. James 2, verse 13. Can you believe this? For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that something? Jot that in. Let's put in the uh, fill-in-the-blank version of that. Please fill it in. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And by the way, the Greek word for judgment is krisis. From whence comes our word crisis. And the New Testament will translate it either way. It can be translated judgment or it can be translated justice. So that justice, technically true, is the reading. Mercy triumphs over justice. Now, I know some of you, you've already got a voice protesting in the back of your mind. You're saying, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. No, no, no. Before you rise up and protest, I want to be quick to affirm that we're not trying to create here some sort of false dichotomy between mercy and justice. We don't have to concoct a straw man. We don't have to come up with a paper tiger. I understand mercy and justice are not antithetical. They're not opposites. They're not even opposed. In fact, do you know what? They hold hands. Moreover, Psalm 85 declares that mercy and justice kiss. They're not, they're not opposites. However... And I believe every single one of us could verify this in the witness of our own spirits. Every one of us knows this in our soul of souls that there are times when mercy must overrule a strict, legalistic sense of justice and right. When need must be elevated above creed. When people are more important than propriety. When mercy must triumph over judgment. Come on, guys, don't you know this? There are times when the letter of the law or the letter of the church manual or the letter of the university handbook, it says, throw them out. But there are times when mercy must stand up. It must stand up in that committee room. It must stand up in that boardroom. It must stand up in that staff room, in that classroom, in that dorm room. Mercy must stand up and say, you can't, you just... Cannot. We must override and overrule the letter of the law. Not, 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 not so that somehow we become, we become lawless, but rather for the sake of making certain that we are never loveless. In fact, I wish, I wish you'd take a look at this. 
this is, this is, this is controversial. I found a line a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago. I believe this line is mercy's appeal to the faith community. And it's, it's in your study guide and you have to fill it in. Move right down to where I am. Read this. Read these words. In reforms, isn't this amazing? In reforms, we would better come one step short of the mark than to go one step beyond it. If anything, hold back. Hold back. Now, here comes the one. Here's what knocks your spiritual socks off, this, this next line. And if there is error at all, let it be on the side next to the people. Write that in. If you're going to err, if there's going to be error, always err on the side of the people. I desire mercy. That's why. And so Jesus, what did he do? He sided with the need of the people rather than the creed of the Pharisees. Sure, come on. A case could be made that associating with tax collectors and socializing with prostitutes makes for bad press for the kingdom of God. Who doesn't understand that? And so some could perhaps even conclude, you know what? That kind of association will only encourage the immoral in their immoralities. But Jesus elevated need over creed. He stood on the side of the people and he said, nope. Look, at if I can win two or three more like Matthew, it's worth the risk. Need over creed. And so Jesus took his place, as we just read in this quotation, on the side next to the people. For you see, mercy elevates need over creed. Our temptation is to do it exactly opposite. Here, right, fill this in. Here's what we want to do. We want to elevate creed over need. Don't we? I mean, we get Jesus' mercy backwards. And so we win our arguments. Where we live, we win our arguments, but we lose our communities. We prove the point until there's finally nobody to whom to prove the point to anymore. Creed won, but it missed it. It lost the need of the people. That is so sad. Pharisees always get it backwards. Pharisees always exalt creed over need. I don't care if you're, I don't care if you're hungry. I don't care if that man has a shriveled arm. What are we supposed to do? Do something about it on the Sabbath? The creed says this is Sabbath. Nothing. Pharisees always elevate creed over need. Jesus says, you got it backwards. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So I tell you what, how did, how did, how did Martin Luther pray? May God of his mercy preserve me from a, cha- a church in which there are none but saints. Deliver me, please, from the perfect. And that's why both Luther... And Jesus chose to be on the side of the people. Need over creed. If there's an error at all, let it be on the side next to the people. Question. Since it's clear that mercy is the default setting for God, I desire mercy. What should be the default setting for the people of God? Answer. Mercy. But of course. I want to end with a testimony. I've had, a, I've had a bit more time to contemplate this issue of mercy than you have because I started brooding on this last fall. So I, I'm a few weeks ahead of you. I want to share with you a testimony of, of where I'm at with this, with this uh, brooding. And because I've been wondering to God, I said, God, I mean, this, this makes sense, but how do we do it practically? How do we live it out? 
I found, a, I found a little question that I'm experimenting with, and I wish you'd jot this question down for what it's worth. I understand. You don't have to take it. But would you jot it down, please? And here's the question I've been asking myself. What would be the most merciful, write it in, what would be the most merciful thing to do in this instance? I know about the, you know, what would Jesus do question. That's okay. Uh, there's also this question, what does the Bible tell me to do? That's instructive, but I'm not getting much help with those questions. I'm being honest with you. I'm finding that this question, what would mercy do? What would be the merciful thing to do? The most merciful response in this instance. I mean, somebody calls me up. Say, hey, do I need some help? So how am I going to respond? It, it, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say, okay, what would mercy do in, in this instance? I want to give somebody a piece of my mind. This is not done right. This is wrong. I just want to give you a little piece of my mind so that you can understand where I stand in this. I want to give my wife a piece of my mind. I've given so many pieces of my mind to Karen, I don't even have a mind left. We're always giving pieces of our mind. That's why we're walking out empty brain. Giving out a piece of my mind here. But so I'm, I'm, starting to, I'm starting to learn. Oh, I, I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm starting to learn. Come on, Dwight. Calm down, please. What would be the merciful response in this situation? Somebody calls me up. It's my day off. I'm already worn out. Could you come and help us, please? I have to put a little break. Hold it right there. Hold it. Hold it. Okay, boy. What would be the most merciful way to respond to this instance? My roommate. Oh, my roommate. Say, what would be the most merciful way to respond to this? My employer. No, my employee. No, my colleague. Man, come on, please. No. What would be the most merciful way to respond? It's Friday afternoon. I got to get gas, and we both gun for the gas pump at the same time. Parking spot. Both of us. What would be the most merciful way to respond in this instance? I'm beginning to figure out now, please, this is going to sound hokey to you. I'm beginning to think that maybe mercy even dictates how I respond to our pet dog. No, seriously. Karen and I, the other day, true, Karen and I, the other day, we were having worship and we're reading this little book called Sons and Daughters of God and there was this line in it and I put it in your study guide. He or she who loves God will not only love his fellow men, but will regard with tender compassion the creatures which God has made. So I'm hurrying out of the house because I, have, I got a creed and that is you don't show up late. I got a creed. But my little dog at the top of the stairs has a major need. So I have to look at Sadie. Well, you can hold it, girl. I'll be back in four hours. Just hold it. And I ask myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that mercy? Is that mercy to my dog? No. Need, need right now gets elevated above creed. Because if a creature is the creation of my loving God who has had mercy on me, then I need to have mercy on His creatures too. So even the way you treat your pets, somehow, I know it sounds a bit, a bit corny. I'm not intending it for it too. But all I'm telling you is, honestly, I'm finding that asking this question, 
What would be the most merciful response to make in this particular instance is helping me. Now, as I said a moment ago, I don't always ask it. I just sometimes I don't have time for mercy. See, I understand that. But you know what? And this is true. And I've only had two or three months ahead of you on this. But I used to stew. I still do. But I used to really get uptight because once I figured something was wrong, it was not it's not good. We don't do things like this. Once I find out about find out about that, then I stew and I'm giving all kinds of speeches in my mind to the person that needs the speech before I ever give the speech. So that speech has a negative. It's just a very poisonous. And so my stomach it, uh, squirts these little gastric juices and my stomach goes into a knot and a knot. And I'm all uptight now. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not afraid of confrontation. Trust me. Bring it on. But until it takes place, see, it's just like this. And I'm realizing, guys, I'm sorry to be so candid with you, but I'm realizing that when you, if you ask this question, what would be the most merciful... Come on, Dwight. Take a, take a chill pill. What would be the most merciful way for you to respond in this instance? I just find that little knot that just... I just find it, it goes like this. Yeah. What's the deal? I don't have to defend my right. I don't have to prove that I have a creed that demands perfection of everybody. I don't have to prove anything at all. The need right now is mercy. And when I let that go, my stomach actually relaxes and I'm ending up having a bit more peace, refreshing peace in my life. Guys, look, at I'm not there yet, I know. But I'm telling you, I've had a few weeks ahead of you. It really does work. What would mercy do in this particular instance with my wife, with my children, with my friends, with my strangers, with my colleagues, with my employees? What would it do? Ah, because the fact of the matter is, when mercy had a choice between creed or need at Calvary, now listen to me carefully, when mercy had a choice between creed or need at Calvary, mercy said, we're going for need. Because the creed is, he's dead meat. She is dead. She has sinned. The creed is clear. You're lost. But mercy said, no, 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 no. When I'm around, need goes over creed. And so mercy stretched out his arms and died for me. Known the creed, but embraced the need. And mercy triumphs over judgment. And I'll, you know that song that we had, had Nick Zork sing a few Sabbaths ago? That song, when, 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 I, when I could not reach mercy, mercy came a-running to me. Hallelujah. Ladies and gentlemen, whenever I go running to any of you in the future, I am asking God, please, let mercy go running with me.